This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today we have another episode of the Children's Hour with Amy Willens, stories about Don Jr., Ivanka, Jared, and little Eric. Those kids are in so much trouble. We have a new source about the Trump kids, their mother, Ivana. She just published a memoir about life with them and their dad. It's called Raising Trump, and Amy Willens will tell us all about it. But first, understanding Trump's base in the white working class. For that, we turn to Gary Young. He's a columnist for The Nation and a fellow at The Nation Institute and an award-winning writer for The Guardian. His most recent book is Another Day in the Death of America, a Chronicle of Ten Short Lives. It was awarded the J. Anthony Lucas Book Prize for combining literary excellence and social concern. We reached him today in London. Gary Young, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. About a month or two ago, you set out on a trip across America, going from the whitest state, Maine, to the blackest state, Mississippi. What exactly were you looking for? The idea was to flip the anthropological script. I'm black and British. Over the years when Obama was in power uh, and when he was on the rise, no end of white journalists would come out and talk about what that meant for black Americans. And I felt that we were in a particularly racial moment. And it is a strange contradiction at times how rarely the polity will discuss white people because white people are seen as a default. You know, it's in, the, in the same way that nobody asked me, when did you come out as straight? Or <laughs> how do you balance being a foreign correspondent and being a parent? Because uh, those are asked to other people that... The, that interrogation of white people and whiteness is all too rare. And when it does happen, sometimes it really ends up being an interrogation of racism, which is a perfectly plausible interrogation, but not the same thing as white people, in the same way that an interrogation of black people would be about more than racism and discrimination. And so my idea was to travel through the country and look at this group of people who ethnically at least, single-handedly put Trump in the White House, and who he seems determined to represent ethnically. This was before Charlottesville, the, the uprisings there. And to kind of look at those pockets of both pain and privilege in white America. So I started out in Maine looking at the opioid epidemic and drove around with uh, a paramedic who's she keeps fearing that she will find her sister one day who mm. is uh, uh, an addict. The, the idea also, I should say, is that we would only speak to white people about white people. And so we spoke to a guy called Andrew Maine who'd been opioid dependent and who'd managed to get out of that situation and was sober now for a while and had managed to do so without any criminal record. And you do see the way, and this is progress in a sense, that the opioid epidemic is understood as a health crisis. Yeah. Even Trump says so, whereas the crack epidemic was understood as a crisis of culture and crime. Uh, and that's one of the things about white privilege. Even when you're on your back in the street with a needle hanging out your arm, it could always be worse. You could yeah. be black. Yeah. And that would make a difference. That doesn't mean your life is great, 
that doesn't mean things don't have to happen, but it does it does um, illustrate a point. And then from there we went to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which has been hollowed out that whole area with um, ex coal mining, ex steel manufacturing. You know, the whole town it looks like what happens when capitalism just doesn't need any people anymore; it just leaves. And that county that Johnstown is in, Cambria County, voted narrowly for Obama in 2008, narrowly for Romney in 2012, and then voted with a landslide for Trump. This phenomenon is crucial to us. The Republican Party is is the white people's party, but there are white people who voted for Obama and then switched to Trump. These are not lifelong Republicans. They're the the new converts that we need to understand. Uh, did you talk to any of those when you were in Johnstown, Pennsylvania? I did. I did. And that was useful as well. I mean, given you know that notion of Nazis don't come with tridents and horns, and all the Trump voters, you know, and there's a guy who voted for Obama, and he said, you know, the jobs didn't come. And he liked Obama's jingle. He said, I voted for hope. And then the jobs didn't come. And then Trump said, he's going to make America great again. And I voted for that jingle. And I said, okay, let's see. You know, it's the Democrats' failure to deliver to a large extent that can explain some of these people switching sides. And even more of them just stayed at home. Just so there's, there's nothing out there. So th- these um, did, out there for me. Uh, did these white uh, working class people you talked to who were Trump voters did they actually like Trump or was it more that they hated Hillary and were disappointed in, uh, with uh, Obama? They were definitely disappointed in Obama. Many people were. They definitely didn't like Hillary, and they didn't necessarily like Trump. But they, a lot of them, felt they had nothing to lose, and. And they, I mean, they were voting for, in a sense, for the right boss for the country. Now, you're never going to like your boss, but you, you know, if you're going to vote for your boss, then you're going to vote for the person who you think is going to kind of get the company going. And there was that about it. I mean, I did say to this one guy, Jeff, he looks like the guy that closed your factory. Not the guy, not the guy that was in the picket line yeah. with you. And he said, yeah, but, you know, he looks like maybe he'd be the guy who might start another factory up. Mm. And it was really so demure. You know, there was, in the absence of anything else, they thought, screw it, I'll give this guy a go. More than that, just kind of just didn't bother. But um, those who did, yeah, it was, um, well, let's give, you know, let's try this. One of the things you concluded uh, from your travels in white America was that white Americans feel more pessimistic about their own future than any other group. wonder why you think that is. I think it's because they have further to fall. That I think, generally speaking, and this may change, you know, with having had a black president or so on, I don't think many African Americans are raised to think, you know what, all you've got to do is work hard at school and uh, go quiet and you'll be fine. You are going to be just fine, yeah. and you'll get the job you want, and uh, the world is out there for you. Whereas there was a sense of there were a sense of entitlements that white people had that were economic, not racial, and were actually quite reasonable in sense of entitlement. Just that they shouldn't have been reserved for one race. That look, if I work 
hard. And, you know, I graduate from school. I should be able to get a job, support my family, have health care, have a decent life. And that was the assumption until the kind of mid-70s when wages started stagnating and then neoliberalism kicks in and the jobs go to where the labor is cheaper and unions are weaker and, and, and the bottom falls out. And so, in a sense, white Americans had further to fall than, than black Americans. So during this time, the gap between black and white has grown in terms of wealth, but the pessimism has grown in terms of uh, white Americans because they have seen a more dramatic fall in their living, in their expectations. And that's one of the reasons why they're so angry. And during that time, you know, Democrats have been in power pretty much as long as Republicans. And um, uh, you have this system rooted in money and lobbyists that, that isn't working for them. So they're desperate. So you traveled a black man interviewing white Americans from Maine to Mississippi. Is there one conclusion that you came to after your travels? Well, yeah. I mean, it should be said, first of all, that white America is, you know, it's a big group of people. So there are rich ones and there are, um, you know, there's a North and the South and so on. But in terms of the ones that I'm most interested in, and that's the working class ones, their health is failing of all of the groups of people in America, white American life expectancy, female life expectancy, has either stalled or is falling. So their health is failing. Their wages are stagnating. Their jobs are fleeing. And so in terms of white privilege, there is really this problem that their whiteness is all they've got left. And there are some who are happy to throw in their lot with others and fight for a, for a better lot. We should not pretend that there isn't a resistance. But there are others who, with their whiteness, with their whiteness of the God left, they fight for it even harder. Because without that, what are they? Their whiteness is all they have left. Gary Young, readamitthenation.com. Gary, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks, Tom. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time for another episode of The Children's Hour with Amy Willens. Stories about Don Jr., Ivanka, Jared, and little Eric. Those kids have so many problems. Amy Willens, of course, is a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, we have a new source on the Trump kids, their mother, Ivana. She just published a memoir about life with them and their dad. It's called Raising Trump. You read Ivana's memoir. What's it like? Yes, I did read it. I've done a lot of sacrificing <laughs> yeah. over the past few months with the books by the the women Trumps. <laughs> First of all, I don't like to 
push a Trump book, but this is a highly pleasurable read. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, it's like instead of you're reading a real memoir, it's like you're reading a memoir of a character who's been invented by someone. Now, that may be actually how Ivana views herself, like an invented persona who came out of nowhere to become this very rich lady. But it reads a little bit like you're taking one character out of a 19th century novel. And that character is the character of the Ariviste in society who pushes her way. Usually it's a woman trying to make her fortune because there was no other way to make a fortune for a woman in those days, push her way into the circles of the elite and live that incredible life. I had just finished reading The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton, <laughs> and I was strongly reminded in the way that Ivana describes the New York society she entered into of the world Lily Bart enters into in that book. Well, I know this. there's a lot about uh, her kids in this book. She is the mother of Don Jr., Ivanka, and little Eric, as we call him. Does she have tips for child raising? Is it that kind of a book? It is that kind of a book, and I am so glad I didn't read it before I raised my own children, or I would have felt sorely minimalized by it, minimized. So I'll tell you some of her tips on child rearing. First of all, don't breastfeed. She didn't do this because it didn't mesh with her work schedule, and she is very horrified that Ivanka is breastfeeding her children. She doesn't understand why anyone would do that when formula works so well. What What was her work schedule? She was running a, the Trump Tower decoration. She was she made the Grand Hyatt and branded it for Trump. Wow. He gave her a lot of jobs. Okay. Of course, it helps, too, also when you're rearing your children, to marry someone who owns a skyscraper that you both live in so that when you break up, he can still live in the building in his own <laughs> duplex or triplex. Another thing is, if you're going to work and have children, it helps in rearing them to have two Irish nannies who live in. Also have parents who agree with you and agree to live in, and so that you never really have to raise your kids. Oh, she also has a houseman. John, what's a houseman? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> His name is David. He's very loyal. What? Uh... Well, very loyal in, in Trump land means has never sold a story about you to the press. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to hear. And uh, who is her her favorite of the of of her kids? Of course, ours is Ivanka. Ours is Ivanka. Well, I think hers is Donald Jr., uh, the firstborn, the cute boy, um, the capable one. She worries a lot about little Eric. He's really presented as little Eric in the book. He's always too young to understand. He's always off somewhere. All of her emotions are seen either through herself or through Donald Jr. Ivanka is just perfect. Mm. And I think that Ivanka is presented as perfect because her mother is grooming her for the presidency in 15 Wait. years. Exactly 15 years, my friends. 15 years from now. today? From now? <laughs> 15 years from now. She thinks Ivanka could be president 15 years from now. That's what she says. This would be, I guess, our first woman president? And the first Jew. Oh, and the first Jewish president, a twofer. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, she was a little irritated when Ivanka dyed her hair blue. That wasn't recently, though. No, and you know what was so great about it? Uh, Ivanka dyed her hair blue, and her mother said, no, 
this cannot stand. Her mother goes out and buys some uh, hair dye and puts it in Ivanka's hair, making it three shades lighter than it originally was. And Ivanka never goes back to her dark <laughs> blonde hair. Now, I I heard that uh, when Ivana was promoting this book, I think it was on the Today Show, she said that Donald Sr., uh, her husband, did not want to name his firstborn son Don Jr. Is, is this a true story? And what was the reason? So they're in the hospital room. They're cuddling the little newborn. And Donald says to Ivana, what should we name him? And she goes immediately, Donald Jr. And he says, no. And she goes, of course we're going to name him that. Why not? What if he's a loser? What if he's a loser? Good this, way to greet your newborn boy. <laughs> this kid is no, not <laughs> one day old. So what must it be like for Don Jr. today to know that his father, on the hour that he was born, said, what if he's a loser? I don't know. To me, it reminds me of Donald Sr. talking also. I think it was about Tiffany and Marla Maple's body and how Tiffany, who was like one year old at the time, would probably have the same attributes of body. Donald was more specific mm. about those attributes. I, he sees children only as their future, fully mature selves, I think. One of the things I wondered about Ivana's book is, you know, she, if she was still married to Donald, she would be the first lady. Has, has this occurred to her? She, it has occurred to her um, when she was interviewed recently on the book tour, she did sort of call herself the first lady. And she, she knows that Melania exists, of course, but she justified her calling herself the first lady. Well, I'm the first, I was the first of the first <laughs> she was the of first. the ladies of the Trump. So okay. she, in essence, and she's the mother of the children who are all uh, infesting the White House. And so she feels her bragging rights as First lady. First-ish. 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 And um, is there any dirt on Donald Trump in this book? You know, there's the scene at the place in Aspen at Bonnie's restaurant where they're all having a very nice family meal, and Marla Maples comes up to the table and says, do you love your husband? She says to Ivana, because I love your husband. And that's when the marriage comes to a grinding halt with this announcement by Marla Maples. So... There is some of that, but there's no, like, inside dirt that you want to know. Like, did they fight? Did she scream at him? You just don't know. It just, the marriage comes to an end. And then the uh, story comes out in the tabloids, the the best sex I ever had, Marla Maple says, leading one to wonder about her previous experience. But, okay, <laughs> so be it. And, uh, and then Ivana has to flee with the children to Mar-a-Lago uh, because she doesn't want them to have to deal with that. So, you know, it's that kind of stuff, but, but nothing really gritty about him. Don Jr. was was like a teenager when the Best Sex I Ever Had headline appears uh, in, the, in the New York Post. And I believe he was still living in New York City at that time. So uh, not too nice to Don Jr. Right. And Don Jr. was the one who was so angry with him and refused to speak to him for a year. And is there anything about that kind of thing or that thing in well, the book? There is a mention of that thing, but there's also the moment where, and I find this surreal. So they're all living in the same building, Trump Tower, and they're divorced or getting divorced. Anyway, Donald Sr.'s bodyguard security guy comes up to the apartment, the triplex as she always calls it, and says his father wants to see Don Jr. This is when Don Jr. is not speaking to him. 
But Ivana says, okay, take him. So they take Don Jr. down. And then Donald calls up Ivana and he says, I'm keeping Don Jr. Wow. Even though she has sole custody. Wow. And she says to him, she says, okay, keep him. That'll make it easier for me. I'll only have two here. And like five minutes later, he sends Don Jr. back up. It was just to mess with her mind. She says it had, she knew he was never going to keep a kid. So that's like perhaps the most dirty dirt you get on Donald. Raising Trump, you might get the impression this is kind of a traditional kind of self-help book about how to actualize your potential and, and be a better person in the world. Is, is that the kind of book it is? I think it's a really, really interesting book, not because it itself is so interesting, but because it's not uh, spiritual, it's not really a self-help book, although there are the wonderful tips on raising children, but it's more of uh, an aspirational book, like, look at me, let me show off in front of you, uh, let me tell you about all the things I have that you don't have. I mean, the reading public, what they don't have these things that she has. When she goes to look for a house in Connecticut, you know, admittedly a second or third house she's looking for, she doesn't drive around the way one would normally with a realtor and go from house to house. They take a helicopter <laughs> so that she can see the extent of the houses she's looking at. And she says something like, I picked the one with 17 bedrooms close to the yacht club mm. uh, with a underground bowling alley and three large kitchens. I'm not kidding. <laughs> From a helicopter. It, but I think it says something about the people who love Trump, mm. this book. I think she's targeting that same audience, obviously, because normally I wouldn't buy this book, right? I'm not a Trump supporter and I wouldn't buy it. But I think the people who will buy it just, they love the lifestyle. It's it's a television, reality television, sort of rich housewives of Manhattan and Greenwich book. And you get to see all of the fun she has in all of the places where she lives. This has been The Children's Hour with Amy Willens. Stories about Don Jr., Ivanka, and little Eric, especially as told by their mother, Ivana, in her book, Raising Trump. Amy, thanks so much for coming in. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. That's it for today's Trump Watch. Today's show was recorded by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. Special thanks to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. I'm John Wiener. The Trump Watch podcast returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. <laughs>